This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 241, brought to you in association with Smart and theenlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dan Harmon, founder and CEO of DarkSquare, who exist to make it possible to buy alternative assets easily. Why buy alternative assets? Well, in extremis, what else would you want to buy? Bonds have finished their about 40-year-long bull market and yield well below the rate of inflation. The FTSE, to pick one random stock market index, has gone sideways over the past five years and is not greatly ahead after a decade. And as for UK, things like property are soft at best, and gold is going roughly nowhere. Naturally, as we've touched on once or twice, all the above phenomena are a function of the nature of money having changed in the early 70s, the 08 crisis, COVID insanity, non-stop war, and much, much more, which have all totally screwed the fiscal and monetary base of major Western economies. And therefore, going forwards, We cannot rely on the performance of, let's say, non-alternative assets, whatever they might be, (laughs) I'll ask Dan in a minute, to be the same as they have over the last 30 years. Namely, if you just kept buying ISAs and equities over over your career for the past 30, 40 years, you'd have made money while you were sleeping in bed. Anyway, even if you want to keep a core of, say, equities in your portfolio, there must be something more interesting to buy. Turns out there is, and it's not just vintage port. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Dan. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm sleepy. I'm sleepy, although I had coffee, which is always the worst thing, actually. <laughs> sleepy without coffee is, is one thing. So anyway, the good news, especially for the listeners, but also for you, is that I would sort of snore gently in the background, and uh, you may manage to get a... Well, yeah, hopefully I won't bore you too much. But uh... So in terms of something... I was about to say, even more interesting than an alternative assets, but I'm sure for you, Dan, there's nothing more interesting than alternative assets. Uh, you, you were saying that you just came back uh, from Greece. What's the weather in Greece like in late September? Yeah, it's, it's pretty nice down there, actually. I was there for my birthday, so there for a couple of days on Paros, one of the islands, uh, which is pretty nice. Yeah, windy, but um, yeah, sunny and, and yeah, happy to, happy to be there, but also excited to be back and sort of getting back to the grind in a way. And what is uh, Paros like? I mean, we went to a couple of years ago, Santorini, which was lovely, but extremely touristy. Fortunately, we're just about at the end of the shoulder, shoulder season. It's definitely less touristy and less busy than you know, Santorini and Mykonos. I mean, you see the video recordings of the streets there and you're just crammed in like sardines. No, it's nice. It's kind of more, I guess, classical Greek island, you know, white buildings everywhere, narrow streets, those pink flowers. I don't know what they're called, but they look pretty nice. But yeah, no, very nice. Um, yeah, nice island overall. So in terms of um, pretty buildings, white buildings, lovely flowers, not entirely like Fulham where you are at the moment. Yeah, a little bit different. Uh, you know, weather's slightly better, um, more place to swim. I wouldn't fancy jumping in the Thames, but, uh, you know, if you're into that. Excellent. So in terms of the career journey that's taking you to a position where you can uh, fly off to exotic places like Paros for your birthday, what is your journey that's led you from college or wherever you started uh, to today? Yeah, so I started out a while ago, I started out in investment banking, but in DCM, um, debt capital markets origination. So originating investment grade bonds for European corporates, 
um, and then moved into kind of the secondary world. So I was a distressed credit trader for a couple of years. So we'd trade things like bonds, loans, unlisted equity, CDS, uh, both single name and index. And that's kind of where the idea for, for Darksquare came from. You know, I was seeing all these hedge funds and institutional clients investing in these kinds of assets that you just couldn't access as an individual, right? Because for bonds, minimums, 100, often 200K, and for loans, it starts at 2 million. So that's kind of where the idea came from. It's kind of fractional ownership of these types of assets. But we thought, you know, why stop there? There are, you know, so many other asset classes out there that are very tough to access unless you have, you know, multi-million pounds um, in your investment portfolio. So we thought, you know, we'd open it up to other things. Um, I guess we'll touch on them later, but things like wind farms, um, solar farms, other alternative private credit deals that would usually, you know, be reserved just for family offices and, and institutional money. Um, so yeah, we let you know a lot more people invest in these types of assets, basically. I see. So um, the English language is a funny thing. So <laughs> I liked your phrase, you're a distressed credit trader, which of course yeah. could mean one of two things. You could either be trading, as you may have been, distressed credit, or you could have been a credit trader who was distressed by <laughs> market I circumstances. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, you were a distressed, distressed credit ta- trader at times and a stressed, <laughs> distressed credit trader and sometimes a jolly distressed credit trader. Funny thing, language. Okay, so look, this is quite a large topic, not least of which because I started by taking it to a level that you probably don't get quizzed on too much uh, in the day job, which is sort of the 300,000 level about what's an asset and (laughs) what's alternative and all this kind of thing. But just in terms of setting the scene, as you've clearly given this some thought, what are, as it were, conventional assets and what are alternative assets and and indeed when did the concept of alternative assets ever arise? I mean going back to when I were a lad and started in the city there was no concept of alternative assets in the same way that a century ago before Rockefeller got got at it there was no concept of alternative medicine there was just stuff that you would take which might be healing and stuff that you you, it was basically that, that was it so and um, back in the day, when I started in the city, there were assets and stockbrokers and merchant bankers and that owned farms, uh, they owned art, <laughs> they got a wine collection, that, you know, uh, got paintings, um, and they never thought of those, I'm sure, I never heard the phrase, of them being alternative assets. So, you know, where does this whole alternative come from? And uh, before we dive into the various types of alternative, let's start by the opposite. What, what are conventional assets in this category to which these other ones are alternative? Yeah, so I mean, I would define conventional assets as anything in kind of the public market space. So things like traditional stocks, bonds, um, ETFs, exchange traded funds. Um, You know, these assets are typically more easily accessible, more liquid, um, maybe easier to understand. Um, And then alternatives, I would kind of class as anything outside of that. I mean, I was at an infrastructure investing conference last week, actually, and someone was making the point that Alternatives are kind of the the oldest asset class in existence. They were saying, you know, the pyramids at Giza were were privately funded. I think someone might need to fact check that. I'm not entirely sure, but um, so you know, they've been around for quite literally thousands of years. So yeah, we look at things like private credit, distressed credit, renewable energy, forestry, hedge funds. We'll look at basically anything that isn't equity, you know, stocks and shares, ETFs, or I guess cryptocurrency, which I think you probably would class in the alternative space. But we don't necessarily look at that because I don't think, you know, a lot of it makes sense from a fundamentals point of view. And also there's a question that it's sort of fairly easy, relatively speaking, to, to buy and sell this stuff if you want to on your mobile phone. So I buy that and 
I think going back to this whole thing about the monetary system having changed and that having many more repercussions than people might have thought through. As I say, there were no alternative assets and to your point, share trading as such only really took off in the, the 19th century for a whole bunch of complicated reasons. And the idea of diversifying your portfolio only yeah, took off in the 19th century when there were with a financialization of companies. Before that, in terms of chartered companies and that, what you would do is concentrate your wealth in one or two businesses in which you were very closely involved, certainly as a, an angel, but really as a sort of um, a director. So a bit like alternative medicine, it isn't actually alternative, it is the traditional one that's been around for centuries and thousands and thousands of years. Human beings 5,000 years ago would have been healing themselves with whatever herb they knew would cure their common cold or or whatever it was. So if we then just provisionally for the sake of this conversation just take a little sort of shorthand thing which is that there are a bunch of assets uh, which certainly over the past 50 years people have for example used uh, in their pension funds or indirectly because it was only fairly recently that people managed their own um, pension funds and pension funds would invest in financial assets like the share certificates of companies or the bond certificates of a bond loan and they could be easily traded. So maybe the easiest way to look at this is that there's a, a liquidity scale out there in terms of yeah. the bid offer spread. So if I sell my house tomorrow and buy another one and then a week later sell that and buy this one back, it'll be absolutely insane because the, the costs will be absolutely nonsense, I don't know, 20% or something, stamp yeah. duties and, and all this insanity. So there's no sense of uh, being able to, to trade it. And even when you do try and sell it, um, you can't get out of it. So, as you say, your origin story is that you were trading stuff and this stuff occasionally produced uh, value or more than occasionally, I hope, for the people who bought it from you. And you thought maybe it'd be good to take this relatively liquid, either in terms of the bid offer spread or the quantum for which you had to buy it. For example, it'd be quite hard to invest 10 quid in, in UK property. Uh, I mean, there may yeah. be a fund out there, uh, but you, you need a chunk to, on the sake of argument, if you're in London, better part of a million to even sort of, you know, buy anything these days, which is insane. So looking at those dimensions of liquidity and minimum ticket size. When you were sitting down thinking about forming Dark Square, how did you take those two dimensions into your, into your mind, into your calculations, into your plans? Yeah, so I guess, first of all, the clients that we target are kind of high net worth and sophisticated investors. So our minimum ticket is still £5,000, which we you know appreciate is high. But um, obviously, the FCA has quite strict guidance on, on targeting retail investors. Um, so we can't target pure retail because I guess they class these assets as being slightly too risky to be put into a traditional investor's portfolio. But yeah, that's kind of where the idea came from. So yeah, minimum sort of starting at 200K. I'd say our sweet spot right now is kind of 500K to 2 million in terms of like total asset size. And then we'll try and split it down into, you know, if we're, if we're targeting a 500K asset, we might try and get 100 investors putting in 5K each or 50 putting in 10K, whatever that, you know, maths might be. So that's kind of how we think about it. We're, you know, by no means saying that we want to replace public market investing. I think it's still very important to have, you know, a large part of your portfolio in liquid public market investments like ETFs, like direct stock ownership, like bonds, you know, but whether that be government or corporate. But we're just saying, you know, it's very important to diversify your portfolio, especially when there's so much uncertainty around, you know, where the economy is going, which I think is, is true for right now. Most of the assets that we list, or pretty much all, will have little to no correlation to public markets. So even in a downturn, in theory, you're, you're slightly protected. And, you know, if you take any intro to investing 101 class, they'll tell you, you know, in the first lesson, probably that being diversified just kind of makes the most sense. You want to you know, minimize that risk across the portfolio. And we're very focused on, on risk adjusted returns. So we the assets that we list are pretty yieldy. So we look at 
double-digit percentage returns annually. But we're kind of looking at things in the 12 to 15% annually range. So we're not targeting, you know, 30 to 40%, you know, massive upside, um, you know, for very high risk. We're, we're looking at things that we really like on a risk-adjusted basis. So we'll, we'll look at, is your downside protected, first of all? And then we'll look at, you know, what are the potential upsides here? And if we like it, then we list it on our site. I see. And just briefly, on the regulatory constraint, I can see that, quotes, they don't want widows and orphans buying into super distressed credit because that's a professional thing. On the other hand, on the other hand, buyer beware used to be the the thing back in the day, and you've got to be an idiot to buy <laughs> distressed credit if distressed credit if you haven't got any kind of professional background. And as I said before, roughly every asset is uh, alternative uh, in this definition, uh, and even people who don't write five thousand pound tickets out for uh, a chunk of distressed uh, credit. Uh, we'll own houses, we'll own cars, <laughs> may own gold, etc, etc. But the regulator is there uh, at the moment. Even if the net effect of their actions is to keep more money flowing into equities and bonds, and I've ranted before, I think about a year or two ago, about the pension advice in the UK and the US from the regulator being to stay in uh, a, a large amount of bonds, which I said was nuts, yeah. well before the bond market uh, crapped out. So there is a huge interference in quotes of the market. Uh, anyway, those are the boundary conditions within uh, which you're working. So in terms of the principal categories of relatively liquid and shall we say relatively possible to fintechize asset over say the next five years, what do you think the principal categories uh, of potential interest to the high net worth individual are? Yeah, so we've we've surveyed um, the members on our waitlist. We found that the three, I guess, most popular categories are distressed credit, real estate, and renewable energy products. Products. Um, so I think they're probably going to be the most popular going forwards. I think part of that is because they're they're more understandable, right? Like if you invest in a wind farm, you're like, okay, this wind farm is going to produce you know x megawatts of energy per year. The price per megawatt of energy is you know y, and this is how much money I'm going to make. It's kind of yield producing. Um, obviously, ESG is very popular right now and very important. So I think people can kind of, you know, you can tangibly measure how much carbon you're you're stopping from being emitted and by um, electricity being produced by a wind farm versus you know fossil fuels. So I think that's kind of popular. Distress credit, I guess, is, you know, sounds I think riskier than it is. I think there's obviously the potential there for higher returns. But at the end of the day, you're investing in credit, right, which is, is senior to equity. So, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that it's actually less risky than investing in, in stocks. Um, certainly some of the smaller, you know, non-blue chip stocks, penny stocks, things like that. And then real estate, I think, as you touched on earlier, very difficult to get access. You know, even if you have £50,000 that you want to to invest into a real estate project, that's, that's pretty, you know, tricky to do. Yes, you could go and buy into a REITs, you know, real estate investment trust. But I think people want more control over their own money as well. They want to make their own investment decisions. Um, and that's what we let people do. We, we list individual assets up on our site and, and let people invest directly into those um, and kind of make their own minds up as to where they want to put their money, which I think is nice. Okay. And when we were talking about the origin story having involved uh, liquidity and minimum ticket size, implicit in that but not mentioned was the other dimension, which is the client's understanding. So you were a trader, you were dealing with professional people who are paid Monday to Friday, nine to five, or even longer these days, to understand all this stuff uh, and to be able to make decisions. 
so how niche are some of these? Because clearly there's a spectrum, CF liquidity. Yeah. Most people yeah. in this country have got an idea about what private housing is as a, as a yeah. market. Mm -hmm. And many people, fewer than used to be sadly, are able and actually buy it themselves. Whereas I, for one, wouldn't want to suddenly go to your site and buy a distressed credit from it without having spent quite a bit of time looking into it. So um, there must be a spectrum, there must be a dimension of sort of how recherche yeah. those things are, how obscure, how much actual knowledge you need. And, and some of these things will appeal to specialists only. I mean, art is a good example. You know, I wouldn't go and buy a random piece of art. What would I know? Whereas on the other hand, um, there are things where, you know, roughly speaking, everybody with any money knows about housing in, in whatever country they're in. So how do you see that dimension in terms of the clients? And, and this comes, of course, into the business model point which is that, you know, you might become, a, you know, the world's greatest private credit uh, alternative asset uh, marketplace, but then you'll presumably be just flogging purely to people who perhaps their day job is, is, is doing that and they just wanted a bit on the side themselves. Yeah, I think one of the things we're doing to, to get around that is listing distressed credit hedge funds up on our site. So we'll take down, you know, 500k to 1 million clip of a, you know, 500 million AUM hedge fund and let people invest into that because that way you get exposure to, you know, maybe 50, 60 individual credits rather than putting all your eggs in one basket in a way into, you know, one bond or, or one loan. So I think, you know, particularly in the beginning, that's probably a better way of doing things because you just get that, you know, diversification within the diversification in a way, right? You're, you're buying into a different asset class and then you're also very diversified within that. And it's a project, a product that you wouldn't be able to get access to otherwise right because minimum buy-ins for hedge funds are you know one to two million plus usually so we're sort of expanding access to those types of assets i think further down the line we would look at doing like single name like an individual distress bond or an individual distress loan but i think right now when it comes to individual deals we're going to look at more you know things more in the real estate renewable space and then when it comes to credit investing um we i think we'll go down the hedge fund route just because it's it's easier to understand that the risk is lower because you're spread across more more assets um and obviously you know as i've as, as i've touched on we're, we're very focused on risk adjusted returns um so i think that makes sense for us okay so i can see this you know there's two potential things here which is well let's just start with the quotes the efficient market hypothesis stuff so the things you're talking about are professionally traded by quotes professionals whatever that means who don't always beat the market and the average fund manager underperforms just even the FTSE for example over decades so what is it that would appeal to a listener about buying assets because presumably although these are relatively liquid if something was quote really really cheap and yielding a million percent and triple a the professionals would have snapped that up in milliseconds, you know, by nine o'clock on Monday morning, as opposed to the sort of retail investor who buys it, looks at it on Thursday and thinks, oh, this is cheap. So are there anomalies, significant anomalies in value in the market? Or is it simply a question that a more diversified portfolio away from just equities and bonds uh, will give you a lower risk profile uh, overall, as long as it's sufficiently diversified within weird and wonderful sectors, as you explained, like private credit? Yeah, I think there's a, a bit of a sweet spot as well, sort of below the, I guess, 50 million mark, where it's sort of too small for the big players to look at because they just can't deploy enough capital into it. But at the same time, it's too big for... You know, even a high net worth investor, right, trying to put, you know, one, two million into something, it's it's a lot for one deal. So I think some of these these deals kind of fly under the radar in a sense because the 
big institutional players just can't look at them, but we can. So yeah, I think a good example of that is the first deal that we've actually just closed with a company called Plend. It was like a, we invested in the top 3 million of a 25 million pound facility. So again, probably too small for your big players to look at, but we managed to pull together a lot of retail investors, you know, minimum 5k and, and get involved in that. So we're kind of, you know, we're not managing money, but we're, I think our, I guess, niche as a company is, is in deal sourcing. So we're, we're constantly on the lookout for deal flow for, for investments that we think are interesting that we can then, you know, show to our clients. So yeah, I think, you know, if we were looking to get involved in, you know, multi hundreds of millions of dollars, offshore wind farms, things like that, you know, not that I think, you know, offshore wind's viable right now, um, then maybe we'd be, you know, wouldn't be able to compete against the, the bigger players. But I think because we're looking at relatively smaller deals from an institutional point of view, um, it gives us sort of more room to manoeuvre in that sense. I see. So this is an, an extremist analogy which won't hold directly. But if, for example, you want to invest in Series A of fintechs over the past decades, and let's say that had been a good idea, even if you just chucked the money over the roulette table at, at random, the reason that, and quotes, anomaly would exist is that for the vast organisations out there, the cost of going around researching all these and investing in, in little things in small ticket sizes is just too much trouble. And therefore, therefore, you are, as it were, playing football in a, in a small local league and you're not playing against Liverpool and Manchester United. Because clearly, if you're trying to, and many people do, why not? Everyone needs a hobby. If you're trying to, shall we say, arbitrage BP share price versus Shell, you are actually playing against Manchester United and, uh, and Liverpool and good luck to you because maybe Manchester United and Liverpool <laughs> aren't playing football well enough. But in terms of quotes, the efficient market hypothesis, the market may not or may or may not be efficient, but the sums of money and, and all that. And I, I certainly had little go last year at uh, uh, trading gold in, in small volumes, buying and selling, but that market seems so artificial, so, so fixed, if you like, that it was not possible. Okay, so let's leaping around a bit. Let's be less logical. One of the challenges with buying into alternative assets, and we've had a few examples on the show, trade finance once or twice, the financialization of trade finance, so to turn it from something that only big banks can do into something that pension funds can buy because it's wrapped up in a little box called a financial asset or something like that, and it's got, I don't know, shares in it or something. So it's financialized in, in that particular sense. You're buying into the box with its contents, not trying to buy the, the contents. In the same way you say a REIT, a real, real estate investment trust, you're not going round ending up with, I don't know, 0.01% of 50 houses. You're, you're ending up with whatever is 0.01% of a, of a basically share in, in something listed on, I don't know, Dublin Exchange or something like that. So in terms of these various categories, and they do differ, there's a hell of a lot of difference between a lot of these. One of the challenges, or perhaps the challenge for you as a business, as well as getting clients, is how do you financialize for the smaller, even if high net worth investor, assets simply and effectively and cost effectively? Yeah, so the way we do it, um, and not to get too sort of dragged into the weeds in the, in the legal details, but we basically set up an SPV that owns each individual investment on our sites. And then we'll allocate equity in those SPVs to our end customers. Um, we think that's kind of the best way to do it because it's, you know, legally backed shares that we're dealing in. People trust the process. People understand it. Um, you know, we're already trying to get people to invest in asset classes that they might not be familiar with. So I think it's very important to have, you know, solid kind of legal foundations when we're doing that. 
there's a few other companies out there that are doing similar things, maybe more in the collectible space that use like NFTs to kind of tokenize these investments. But I think they're kind of dealing in smaller ticket items. So, you know, they let people invest in a share of a Rolex or or vintage port, like you touched on in the intro, right? You can actually go and invest 20 quid into, into one of those if you wanted to. Um, and things like, you know, Pokemon cards, those kind of things. So they're, they're kind of making those more accessible. Um, but because we're targeting, you know, more sophisticated, more high net worth individuals, you know, the minimum ticket on our site is 5k, which is a pretty substantial amount of money. We want people to feel comfortable um, when they're investing and we don't want them to have any uncertainties around the actual structuring. Um, so yeah, we partner with a company called Delio to do that for us. So they kind of do our, the structuring of our deals. They're fully FCA authorized. Um, and, have, you know, they work with some big banking clients like Barclays, Coots, UBS, I think they have um, on their books. So, you know, very tried and tested, which I think is very important for us and for our customers. Because really, yeah, it's it's very difficult to get access to these these types of assets. So I think, you know, we're, we're, we want to offer our, our customers solutions and not kind of, you know, um, burden them with problems and, you know, endless kind of red tape. And I think if we were doing that ourselves, trying to set up the legal docs, it'd be much more difficult. So I'm kind of glad we've, we've got a, a simple solution to that. Uh, excellent. Well, SPV can mean many things. So maybe we do need to zoom in at yeah, least right. one, one level into that. And then the other point, uh, which is quite important, <laughs> is that investors, as I recall, need to do two things. They need to buy something and then later they need to sell it. And ideally it's gone up a lot in the meantime, which would be nice because if it goes down, that's disappointing. So how does that work? Are the SPVs, you know, fixed term, three years, you get your money back, it's all sort of dissolved or whatever? I mean, how does that actually work? And and, and always in thin markets, the liquidity isn't there. So. Uh, it's very easy to put your money into something and in many circumstances private investing in series A of fintechs is a good example perhaps getting your money out is uh, is easier said than done and you've got oh yeah this you know this 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 business is doing really well great it might be doing really well but your money's still in it and you've got no chance of getting it out for the foreseeable future it's a little bit academic so how do you deal with this whole issue yeah, so so the SPVs, um, special purpose vehicles, are basically they're just set up as a you know standard limited company based either in in the UK or Luxembourg, um, and then they'll own the asset, and the asset will have kind of a fixed maturity. So, for example, this first deal that we've just funded is a private credit deal, um, and the maturity is minimum of two years and a maximum of five years with a hundred and eighty day notice period within that. So if you want to, you can get out in in two and a half years, or, or you can wait the full five years um, and then recover your money at the end. Um, but yeah, I think that liquidity point is an important one to make. Um, so our kind of target duration is is two to five years, but we would look at things that are less liquid than that, right? We'd look at things that, you know, maybe you need to be locked up for 10 years. Um, so our investors, our customers do need to be prepared to, to lock their capital away for significant periods of time. Um, so again, yeah, we're not the most liquid of platforms, um, but you know, obviously with you get a kind of illiquidity premium on your investment, right? Like these things yield slightly more because they're less liquid. Um, you know, if you were able to trade in and out of something intra daily, then you're obviously going to get paid less to do that. So yeah, that's kind of where we are right now. And then the plan for the future is to, to launch a secondary market on our site. So we'll let people buy into and sell out of assets that have already funded. So for example, if we had a, you know, real estate deal that closed six months ago and somebody you know just signed up to the site and, and liked the look of it and wanted to get involved they could buy into it from somebody that um 
had you know funded it at, at in, in primary when it was originated and i think our fee model helps with that as well so we charge one percent upfront cash fees but and one percent annual fees but the annual fees we take in payment in kind so we actually take one percent asset ownership each year so we have some of the actual risk some of the ownership on book which i think will make it easier to kind of facilitate secondary market trading so if we want people to you know buy into a sellout of assets we don't have to perfectly match trades we can say okay you want to buy into this we have some on book we can sell you and then if somebody wants to sell out we don't have to find a buyer we can say okay we can take this down ourselves so that's kind of what we're looking at doing some of the other similar companies to us out there have this in place already if you look at cedars who are the they let people invest in very early stage kind of startups they have a secondary market i think it runs once a month or something um so there's, there's other sites out there doing doing this type of thing where they're making you know illiquid assets kind of more liquid um obviously there's no guaranteed liquidity right like if you're if you're trading apple stock you know you can sell out of it you know in, in you know two seconds so you know there's no perfect solution these assets are illiquid i think you know it's very important that our customers and investors understand that I think most of them do, and that's kind of why we're targeting only high net worth sophisticated, because um, we want people to be willing, you know, to, to commit to longer term investments, um, and obviously understanding that there's, you know, liquidity risks if you know personal situations change in a year and you need that money, you can't necessarily get it, whereas you could in a, a stock or an ETF. Um, so yeah, but obviously they get compensated for, for taking that that additional risk. Yeah. So going back to how you can outperform, I don't know. A cash deposit at a Halifax. Uh, one of the reasons is is that you're selling liquidity. <laughs> Just yeah. in the same way, you get an 18 month deposit with Halifax. You're going to get more interest rate than your one where you've got um, uh, no notice account. I mean, one yeah. just one on a sort of just minutiae um, thing that you mentioned there about uh, you guys uh, holding assets. Isn't there a conflict uh, of interest, which presumably the regulator would rule out, of you both being the marketplace in which things are bought and sold, but also being a participant? Uh, in the marketplace. So if I want to sell, for the sake of argument, in two years' time, my share in an SPV of distressed credit or a hedge fund, and I think well, I bought it 100, um, and uh, you say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll buy it off you, and uh, you say, oh, well, we'll buy it for 50, then that's not really a market, is it? I mean, is there a conflict of interest? So in an ideal situation, when it comes to secondary markets, we would just find a buyer, find a seller, match off that trade, a job done. But what um, having some asset ownership on the book does for us is it just makes it easier for us to facilitate trading. So if we had a buyer, we'd be able to sell to them and then replace it later on. That's kind of how most sell side, you know, bank trading desks work is they'll have a small risk book that they use to facilitate trading. You know, they'll, they'll own a small piece in most of the assets that they trade um, so they don't have to perfectly match things things off. Um, and that's kind of the model that we are hoping to set up. So I don't think there's a conflict of interest there. And I think in addition to that, it aligns our incentives with those of our customers, right? Because the more money they make, the more money we make, basically. And if you know we're not incentivized to list something that goes to zero, because if it does, we don't get paid. Um, so we're not going to you know list assets that we don't um, believe in and, and that we don't like. Um, but having said that, I mean, we don't manage money. We're not, we're not taking views. We're not saying, you know, we're so smart, give us your money, we'll manage it for you. We do just kind of curate and I guess screen deals and list the ones that we think make sense on a, on a risk adjusted basis and then let our customers make make up their own minds. So we're never in a position where we're managing money. We're never making decisions on behalf of clients. Um, so, you know, someone will say, I want to buy into this private credit deal and, and lock up for five years and they'll do that. And then if they want to change their mind, we'll be able to help them, um, you know, 
find a buyer or, or find a, a seller if they're looking to buy into it um, further down the line. But it's it's not um, you know we're not we're not managing their money. We're not kind of looking after it for them. Right. Okay. Well, let's not dive further into the dark squares uh, implementation yes. of it because we can talk about that uh, in the outro uh, when necessary. But um, as you say, banks do this. But uh, the one thing about a bank, you may recall. Uh, is they've got lots of capital. They've got loads of money <laughs> sitting around so they can do it. Um, and to the extent that in five or ten years' time you're busy actively dealing and you have a portfolio, then someone, some regulator might, correctly I feel, uh, come along and say, oh, you need a lot of, a lot of um, capital because you, you may absorb losses because you're a principal investor. But anyway, that's, that's your business model. That's for another day. That's not about the, the main course. So just to wrap up the main course, maybe at sort of the, the detailed level in terms of these various categories that you mentioned and then zooming back up to the big picture for people investing in their um, SIPs or whatever private pensions are called in your country. How do you see the future of the whole alternative asset investment space or to use a different phrase investing in things uh, in your portfolio which aren't just bonds and bonds and equities on the major markets? Yeah I think you know the big picture at a high level that the key message that we want to convey is just diversify your portfolios more. I think it's very difficult to do that, right? It's all well and good saying that to, to retail investors, but it's tough to diversify away from stocks, ETFs, which are often you know linked to stocks, um, bonds and crypto. You know, it's very difficult to do that. So that's kind of the problem that we're looking to solve for. Um, we've seen a lot of other platforms pop up that are doing similar things to us that I think are quite cool. There's a company called The Car Crowd that let people invest in like vintage cars so you can buy a share in a 1930s Ferrari. Um, there's other companies that allow people to invest in collectibles, you know, wine, whiskey, art, watches, kind of luxury assets that I guess you couldn't afford or maybe wouldn't want to buy, you know, a £20,000 Rolex outright because there's a lot of risk if you, if you lose it or it gets stolen, but you own a share of it and hope it goes up in value. Um, so I think, you know, we saw a massive increase in interest in investing, I think during the pandemic from retail investors. Um, you know, I'm sure you saw all the hype around, you know, Reddit, day trading, people getting involved in investing on, on TikTok, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's obviously upsides and downsides to that. I think, you know, downsides are a lot of that was focused on on crypto NFTs and, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. But I think, you know, in a positive light, it kind of opened people's minds up to investing and investing outside of traditional sort of stock markets. I think people want more control over their money. They want to make their own investment decisions. Um, people have more access to information now than ever before, right? Like I remember talking to well, maybe it was a uni, this hedge fund manager gave a speech and was saying, you know, they'd actually go to libraries and go into the, you know, the basements of libraries to look at financial records. And you'd actually have to trawl through physical books, physical binders of, of pages of data to, to find this info. Whereas now it takes you 15, you know, 20 minutes on Google um, and maybe, you know, spending a couple of pounds on, on subscriptions here and there. So, you know, it's way easier to get info. Um, now it's way easier to invest, right? You can transfer money um, same day. Um, you know, same minute usually. So it's just, it's way easier. And I think right now, most of the investment marketplace is focused on, you know, public markets, stocks, shares, you know, Robinhood's had massive growth in the last five, 10 years. Um, and, you know, trading 212, eToro, you can buy stocks now in, in Revolut, I think maybe in Monzo as well, you know, these traditional kind of e-money banking apps. So it's a massively, I think, growing um, industry. But I think the alternative space has kind of been overlooked. Um, whereas if you look at, institutional investors right if you look at massive hedge funds pretty much all of them have money in alternative assets be that real estate be that private credit be that private equity or others so i think you know they're very well understood these asset classes by big institutional investors and our hope is that 
we can be part of the push to allow retail investors, individual investors to access these types of assets. Um, but yeah, like I said, we're definitely not trying to replace stock investing or ETF investing. I think that's it's very important that people hold money in that. But we're saying, you know, if you put 15, 20, 25% of a portfolio into alternatives, um, and maybe do some of that through us, then uh, you should be good to go and then, you know, more diversified across the portfolio. Excellent. Well, I think that one thing that comes to my mind in terms of buying, shall we say, something other than bonds and equities, is that if you look at the oligarchs um, and the corporatocracy, um, they're busy hoovering up other stuff. So Gates is uh, famously the largest uh, farmland owner uh, in America, helping him uh, implement his sociopathic plans, and uh, uh, talking of which RFK Jr., uh, in a speech that astounded me, um, said that BlackRock, Vanguard, and whoever the third one is, there's a sort of trio, uh, own something insane like 80% of the S&P uh, 500. And not just that, that at the current rate of growth, by 2030, they will own the majority of family houses in America, which is insane, disgusting, and, and all this kind of stuff. And maybe RFK, if a miracle happens, um, will be present and start doing something about it. But uh, it's always best to judge people by their actions, not what they say. And the people with the most money in the world are the ones who are leading the way um, in buying um, other stuff. That having been said, you know, the regulator does it very crudely, um, as perhaps they have to, uh, but having spent quite a while in fund management myself, I've found that many young traders have not yet found that uh, it's quite easy making money in, in the short term, <laughs> and you can think you're a hero, uh, but you try making money over 10 years, 20 years, or whatever, you find out it's more challenging. So yeah. um, people do need to do uh, their research, unless they're just in investing with sort of, you know, like one of the clan did was put a, put a quid in a sort of a you know, hundred different each in a hundred different cryptos. It doesn't really matter if they go bust, uh, but when maybe one of them makes a gazillion, or oh, that was his hypothesis, isn't turning out so well so far. Okay, so we've covered this uh, in quite depth, um, and I quite like the finishing angle, which is that look, the big boys are buying all this other stuff. So <laughs> if you're enabling, um, albeit relatively sizable, uh, financial individuals uh, to invest invest. Um, that is uh, a good thing. And going back to non-crude regulation, for the sake of argument, people should be able to invest. Well, I, I, always, make the way, I always make the case that you can go into a horse betting shop and bet any amount of money on a horse. The FCA doesn't say, oh, you're a poor person, you're not allowed to do that. And, and, and they do with this. Anyway, that's the way of the world. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Dan, we've mentioned Dot Square uh, once or twice. Uh, as the astute listener will have heard, you're relatively uh, new in terms of uh, getting your marketplace going, uh, albeit got a long experience of this whole area. Would you like to tell the listeners out there uh, what at the moment um, they can buy uh, from Dark Square uh, in which country, uh, what you need even more of tomorrow to be bigger and better, um, and uh, Dark Square's plans for the future? Yeah, absolutely. So we're live now, so feel free to check us out at darksquarecapital.com. We're open now to users across the UK and Europe. 
unfortunately not in the, in the US and Asia right now, but um, most of that's focused in the UK and the assets that we're listing are predominantly UK based as well. So yeah, if, if you do want to get involved, diversify your portfolio and potentially make some, you know, decent double digit returns kind of in the 12 to 15%, maybe slightly higher range, then feel free to, to check us out. But yeah, plans for the future, you know, we've got about just over 700 people on our wait list now that we're, we're going to be going live to, we will be live to when this comes out. And then the plan is to kind of grow it from there. So we want to have about 3000 users, hopefully by this time next year. So we're not targeting tens or hundreds of thousands of users, we want to keep it pretty small. And yeah, kind of forecasting, I guess, average annual investment of about £10,000, I guess, due to about 30 million in volumes on my maths per year. So that's kind of where we are right now. That's kind of the, the plans in for expanding in the short term. Yeah, I mean, aside from that, I think, you know, that even if you don't want to invest through us, I think, you know, feel free to check us out. I'm happy to you know get as much feedback as possible. I think, you know, Mike's brought up quite a few interesting points around, you know, liquidity. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, a more difficult investment environment now because you can get, you know, risk-free returns of six, six and a half percent in some places. So yeah, it kind of makes the, I think, investment case for traditional assets much more difficult, right? Like, why would you buy a corporate bond yielding 7% when you can get risk-free six. So yeah, it's kind of forced us to, to sort of delve a bit deeper and find kind of more interesting assets. Um, but obviously, we're, we're very much focused on downside protection. So that's kind of the, the main thing that we look at. Yeah, I mean, aside from that, I think, you know, we've touched on it quite a lot. But you know, the main point we really want to get across is just how important it is to diversify a portfolio, especially in times of, of uncertainty, you know, around the world, particularly in the UK now, now, right, we've got an election coming up within the next year at some point. It's been a tumultuous couple of years for, for a variety of different reasons, that I guess, you know, we don't need to get into. But I think, you know, the, the main, yeah, takeaway that I want to, I guess, leave people with is, is you know, stay diversified. And, you know, it's easy to do that within equities, within stocks, but um, you know, there's, there's many other asset classes out there that just haven't been able to be accessed, really. So that's what we're trying to do, trying to open those up. Excellent. Well, I'd also like to see some regulatory change going forward to help you, as um, just as a, <laughs> an unsophisticated investor. I'd be perfectly happy, let's forget the betting one, which is a very strong argument, but uh, I think the average person in this country will understand what a forest is and should be able to put 100 quid in it Vial platform potentially um, in the future, whereas I even I would be quite happy that the average person uh, shouldn't be able to stick money in distressed credit or something like that. I wouldn't want my parents putting it in that because they would have no idea whatsoever. But that having been said, all the Sunday newspapers for decades are always advertising things like commodity funds. You know, oh the commodities are up. If you'd invested three years ago, you'd have made five thousand percent, and that's always the the top of the market. So it is a bit of a challenge. So that's been very interesting, um, and as I say. The fact that the big boys who are running the world, um, hopefully not for much longer, are investing in all these kind of things uh, means that the basic hypothesis, which is that financialized assets of the conventional category, certainly the last 150 years, of uh, equities uh, and bonds aren't looking brilliant. Um, the motivation for investing varies across one's career uh, or lifespan. And when you're in 20 something, you want to put some money in something and see if it goes up. And that'd be quite nice because you quotes made money. At uh, the other end, um, for those uh, listeners who are all living on their pensions and taking their pensions, um, the concern is, given that longevity has increased, what on earth you can invest in on a 10, 20, 30 year horizon that will keep pace of inflation. And it's been quite remarkable 
um, that I've, as of late, that, <laughs> this is going to sound very silly, but actually roughly nothing has kept, place with, <laughs> kept pace with inflation. Uh, equities, yeah. uh, bonds, houses, gold. So I don't know what it, what's happening there and I don't know how to invest, but that's another story entirely. So and thank you, Dan, and I wish you and Dark Square every success in the future. Great. Thanks, Mike. Really nice to chat to you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me, watch the fire light dance.